Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back, bookcasers. Good to have you with us once again. I'm Charlie Gibson. And I am Kate Gibson. How are you? Hello. Well, I'm great. <laughs> top, top of the morning to you, Kate. That's an Irish expression. I don't know how much it's still used in Ireland, but top of the morning to you. Wait, 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 wait. You've told me this before. And the rest of the day to you? Rest of the day to yourself. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Um, hey. I was taught that I was privileged enough to cover the Speaker of the House when I was covering the House of Representatives, Tip O'Neill. And he said to me, that's the proper response to top of the day and the rest of the day to yourself. And we're doing all this for a reason, actually. <laughs> you should explain why, Kate. It's because we had Lucky Charms for breakfast this morning. No, now that I've traded on every Irish cliche, it's because we have a fantastic Irish writer on the show today, Sebastian Barry, with a long, illustrious career whose most recent book, Old God's Time, is on the long list for the Booker Prize. And this is not the first time he has been on a list, I believe, for the Booker Prize. I believe you called him the Meryl Streep of literature. Right, right. <laughs> well, of Irish literature. He's been on the list. Yeah. The Booker Prize is maybe the most prestigious prize given to a book in the English language every year. And he has been, there's a long list that comes out sometime during the summer, which is usually nine or 10 books. Then there's a short list and that this year is going to be announced uh, late in September. And then there's a winner. He has been long listed three times, short listed twice, hasn't won the award yet, but that's a lot of nominations for somebody who has, I think, written nine books, I think. Yeah, you got to figure after nomination number three, say, you're like, hey, man, I've got some talent. I've got some game, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, we asked him about it. He said, it's still a thrill. It is still a thrill. And one of the, well, first of all, like so many Irish writers, he has a wonderful gift for prose. His language is wonderful. And I just think he's terrific. But it's, uh, what, the third Irish writer we've talked to. We talked to Niall Williams way back at the beginning when we began this podcast with his wonderful book, This is Happiness, which I still think people have to read. And then we mm -hmm. talked to John Boyne with his books. And now Sebastian Barry, as Kate mentioned, his latest book is Old God's Time, which you found a little depressing, but you said, like others who have read it, that it's just wonderful lyrical prose. It's, I believe, a very rewarding read is how I would describe it. I think it very much delves into the Maltese sort of layers of Ireland's PTSD. Ireland, for being a, a small island, has had a very rich history, and a lot of it has been full of conflict. The conflict between the English and the Irish and the IRA. There was uh, sexual abuse scandals in the Catholic Church. There was how long the Catholic Church ran that country with an iron hand, essentially controlling the government, there being no separation between church and state. And I also want to say that I also have a tendency to struggle with stream of consciousness novels. And this is very much a stream of consciousness novel. They have a tendency to make me feel claustrophobic or trapped as a reader. I can't ever tell what's really the truth. I loved this book. I thought it was a beautiful exploration of some very complicated issues. And, and he does it with a wonderful Irish touch that includes sort of the gift of gab. And the stream of consciousness here, I thought, really enhanced the story rather than making me feel 
trapped by it. It's a beautiful read, even if it is kind of tough at times. Stream of consciousness, but written in the third person. And he explains why he tries to do that, to use the third person in a stream of consciousness novel, which he's done in a couple of his books. But I just love the way he, his powers of description. I wrote down one, you know, here's a guy going to bed. He's writing about Tom Kettle, who is the central character, and he's just getting into bed, going to bed for the night. But in Sebastian Barry's language, he got in under the covers. He folded his old hands across his chest as if a conscientious undertaker had spruced him up. And with a peaceful heart, he sought his deserved rest. Now that's, you know, I'd have written, he went to bed, but no, not with him. There's another line too, that you said to me too, which is not also like, and because Tom Kettle was old, he had to get up a lot to go to the bathroom. There's also this great line, which is his bladder was the thief of sleep, which is a great way of describing slight incontinence. You gotta love Irish writers for that. I don't think I'm giving anything away. This is not a spoiler. Uh, Tom Kettle's wife, June, has passed away before the beginning of the book. And one other thing, how he loved June. He used to go ages when she was alive without ever having that thought. And then suddenly, for no reason that he could remember, he would catch sight of her in some moment, some gesture, to be stricken all over again. I just, it's just nice. It's nice. You know, there are great Irish writers. And I was just amazed at the list. I mean, I knew most of them, but Jonathan Swift, Oscar Wilde, James Joyce, George Bernard Shaw, C.S. Lewis, Seamus Haney, W.B. Yeats, Bram Stoker, of course, who wrote to Dracula. But Kate, I'm going to give you a quiz. What Irish writer has sold more books mm. than any other Irish writer in history? All right. Well, let me ask you, was it in the list that you just wrote, like that you just no. tottered off? No. It's, in, it's not in that. No. And it's a woman. It's a woman? Yeah. Wait a minute. J.K. Rowling is Scottish, isn't she? No, she's not Irish. Okay. All right. I give who? Maeve Binchy. Really? Yeah. Oh, you know, that actually in some ways that doesn't, I loved the circle of friends when I was growing up. And I remember thinking when I was reading it, it has such a broad spectrum of appeal. You know, I think a woman, a, a young woman of 10 or 11 can read it and get something from it. And somebody in their forties can get something from it. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Yeah. She's a lovely writer. But as I say, all of them, and for such a small country, you know, there's only 5 million exactly. people, only 5 million people in Ireland, four a million, I think slightly 4 million plus in the Republic of Ireland, if I'm I'm pulling this out of my hat. I'm not sure I'm being accurate, but and then a million up in the six counties of Ulster in Northern Ireland. So it's about five million people on an island that, as uh, Sebastian Barry points out, an island that's only about the size of Iowa. Why does it produce all those unbelievable writers? It is amazing. Anyway, we had a wonderful conversation with Sebastian Barry, and here it is. Sebastian Barry, it is a great pleasure to have you in the bookcase. We are delighted to be able to talk to you. I, I'd like to start with the book, With One God's Time. It's the story of Tom Kettle. It is essentially, I would say, a stream of consciousness novel, but you wrote it in the third person, and you write in the third person with stream of consciousness sometimes. I'm curious as to why you did that, and also tell us a little bit about Tom Kettle. When I was a little boy, I did what all small boys do, which they're not supposed to do. I was looking in at doors, and at this particular door, I peeped in, and there was a man, a large man sitting in the center of, the, of a, quite a bare room in a wicker chair, 
looking out to sea, the beautiful view of Dorkia, and smoking a cigarillo, which seemed to me the essence of contentment, especially to me. Also, he seemed very calm, very happy. I never saw his face. I never spoke to him. I don't think I ever saw him again. But for some reason, he stayed with me for the next 60 years until finally he becomes the subject of the book. He's not able not to speak because it's his private mind. He's able to tackle those things that have bothered me most, not only as a writer, but as a human person, as an Irish citizen. I felt it was my duty as a writer and, you know, in the respect of the third person to simply see what he was seeing, to hear what he was hearing. The kindest thing, I think, or the most loving thing, let's put it that way, that you can do is try and be a witness. And sometimes being a witness, especially to a life like that, can involve quite a lot of scarifying inner thoughts of your own. It's not the easiest thing to do, but it was very rewarding because he, you know, he is a very, very sweet man. I'm fascinated by your seeing what is a still frame picture in your mind, a single photograph that stays in your mind and stays there for 60 years, and that that would become the genesis of a book. Yes, I mean, I'm fascinated by this, not just the stillness of photographs, but as you say, what they suggest, the movement that is implicit in their stillness, what happened next, who those people were. I'm interested in what stream of consciousness offers you. Like as a writer, do you sometimes feel trapped by the stream of consciousness you're married to? Or is it in some ways very freeing because you're not married to a story per se? So do you, I mean, are there mornings where you're like, I'm trapped in this person's head or is it a freeing way of writing? Well, I'm married to the story that I don't know yet. That's going to be revealed to me as the strange writer reader because you're the first reader of your book in a, in a curious way. I don't feel, what do I feel trapped by? I could feel trapped by Irish history. I could be, feel trapped by the Irish reign. But my freedom is being in the midst of a book. And I don't mind if I'm obliged to work in the third person, second person, first person, or any other person. I am just glad and grateful to have the feeling of a book unfolding finally under under my hand it's in my hands and, and it's you know it's in my heart and that doesn't feel confining when you sit down to write from the perspective of tom kettle and you start a book like this do you already have in your head how reliable he is as a narrator do you as an author know what really happened i mean i implicitly i make an act of faith in his reliability hmm. when you're under i mean we can when you're under immense stress, stress, when somebody, I mean, he is on being discharged from the army, he's diagnosed with PTSD, he's been abused as a child, he has very serious things to deal with. That is the plot of the book. I don't think he is, I, he, what he's experiencing, I mean, it's like, it's not schizophrenia, it's not dementia, it's not any of those things. It's a person under immense stress. So he is actually, far as he knows experiencing those things and i'm not going to second guess him you know so i regard him actually as deeply reliable mm. because he turns his loving eyes and loving heart to what is happening to him and is trying to breast that way you leave me in this book as a reader at times a bit unbalanced i love your prose i love your cadence but i'm not sure at times what i'm reading 
I've not found that to be the case in other novels of yours that I've read, but does that sort of tickle you to leave me uncertain about what what is really going on with Tom and, and what I'm reading? In this book, it was don't explain anything. Mm. Because as soon as you start to explain, it turns into a different sort of book. Here, here is a man experiencing something. Can we go with him with the confusion of his experiences? Uh, it's, confusion, as you know, especially for older people, sometimes can be very terrifying in itself. My whole prayer was that his readers would be willing not only to take on the uncertainty of what's happening to him, but also some of the imagery of what happened to him long ago. And I had a brother who, who was schizophrenic and who did have very real experiences that were not real. And that was incredibly confusing, not just for him, but for us. Uh, so I'm very, I'm highly aware of that. It did thrill me a little bit now to answer your question. <laughs> that because a book is, you know, it's true. I'm writing this, so therefore it must be true. Then you're writing something that actually is happening to Tom, but is not actually true. That did give me a slightly, a very enabling, wicked feeling. <laughs> it's interesting to me that the Irish that I have known, to some extent, carry Irish history in their being, in their souls. That Ireland has had such a difficult 700 years leading up to the early part of the 20th century, and even in the 20th century, a very difficult history. You set a number of your novels, two of them that I have read, that are set right around the time of Irish independence in 1921 and just after. And there are many novels that celebrate that, write about that as such an important part, important time for Ireland. But you write in those novels about the fact that there's a negative side to what happened with Irish independence and that that wasn't all positive, particularly for people who wittingly or unwittingly may have done things to benefit the English from whom Ireland won independence. I, I wonder why you decided to write with that point of view about Irish independence. Well, I'll give you the three-minute answer to a three-hour answer that this deserves. The fact is, you know, before independence, uh, if you leave aside uh, Anglo-Irish life, the layer of Ireland that was the kind of ascendancy class who were more or less ruling Ireland before independence, if you leave that, even leave inside that, 1916 was supposed to be a deeply feminist moment in Irish history. It was with Owen Sheehy Skeffington and these people who were great uh, feminists. Many things, and women were to be free, and there was going to be a great sense of equality uh, in the new country. I mean, it was a chance to make, you know, how beautiful is that? A chance to make a, a new country. And um, by 1922, when we did get finally to that point, uh, first of all, we had a civil war, which truly cleared the pitch, you know, possibly ever since. As somebody said in the Doyle, in our, our own parliament, the baby's been murdered in its cradle. There was a sense of that. But also many, many people who had fought during those times, whether in the War of Independence or the Civil War or in 1916, felt utterly betrayed by this new Ireland and were disgusted by it. And it wasn't what they fought for. They left the country. They went to America, many of them. They went to England, so you know you never heard their voices again. What we were left with, amazingly, after this incredible 
birth pangs of glory was, was a deeply, deeply conservative Catholic church, that deeply, deeply conservative a political class like de Valera, who was, you know, literally kissing the ring of the archbishop, did manfully try to keep the archbishop out of the constitution that he was writing for the country, but actually McQuaid, the man in question, who is rather the villain of my book, uh, did write parts of the constitution, especially pertaining to women and their special position in, in basically keeping in the kitchen. That was his idea, I think. So, you know, it wasn't this glorious thing. It had been fought for to some degree gloriously. It didn't lead to glory. Maybe that is the human story. I thought it was important that an Irish person now, like my children, should have the full picture of the incredibly complicated and wondrously contradictory country and history that we come from. I want to ask you a little follow-up to that, but you may already have answered it. So is writing a form of therapy for you and is writing a form of therapy for Ireland? That's what I've been trying to do in these nine novels, is try and define myself first. But defining yourself is not particularly therapeutic, except in the sense of, you know, when the therapist wants you to work, do the work. (laughs) So maybe, yes, writing the (laughs) books is my version of doing the work. But as we all know in therapy, doing the work is not particularly pleasant. It might lead to, you know, a nicer person for somebody to be married to, ultimately. My wife might say that, but, you know. <laughs> so, so. There is a sense, um, and maybe this is also pertains to the books, that there is an idea of Ireland, not just among Irish Americans, but Americans in general have views of Ireland that come through Hollywood and that come through Broadway and Broads and all the rest of it, that obviously depicts a country that sort of never existed and certainly doesn't in the present. So in a way, that's kind of beautiful a thing in its own way because it creates a way for Irish people who fled from the famine or whatever to think about their country in a comforting way. Let's talk a little bit about that, about Irish writing and and maybe even America's fantasies or myths about Ireland. But the thing that I take away from Quiet Man was the beauty of the landscape. It was just, it was exquisite. But you're the third Irish writer that's been kind enough to join us. And there are four Irish writers, I think I counted mm-hmm. correctly, who are now shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Is writing in the DNA of the Irish? Well, we're really only as big as Iowa, you know. I mean, Iowa is 3.7 million or something. I think the Republic is 4 million mm-hmm. people. I did, as laureate for Irish fiction, which I did for three years, I did make 18 podcasts with my fellow writers, uh, including John Boyne, to ask, you know, what the hell is it that we do? <laughs> uh, why are we doing it? And how did we end up doing this? And what is this? Nobody knew. But we had an absolutely thrilling time finding that out or restating that. We had no idea. But that is the real answer to your question. But there's something of a sense of place. I actually wrote it down. There's a, there's a line in your novels about pity the poor Irish. The Irish history is so complicated. It doesn't allow itself to uh, easy. You know, I love my country because I feel I know it. I have looked at the backs, you know, the dark side of the moon of Irish history. And I love my country. Uh, you know, I feel I've earned the right to do that almost. And I think that's what you have to do, whatever nationality you are. You mustn't unthinkingly just express these things. The exuberance of Irish literature, the beauty of Irish music and song, 
and to a certain degree painting, comes as offering an antidote to a lot of things, uh, not always obvious things. And I think that's what it is. We go for beauty. I was thrilled to describe the beauties of Dorothy while I was writing that book. I was privileged mm. to note them down. And your writing really is evocative of that beauty. We talked with John Boyne, and he told us, interesting, he said, I'm, I'm in love with Ireland, and I, I love my country. I would never leave. But he is so deeply angered by the Catholic Church. I detect the same in your writing. Is that fair? Well, I, the Catholic Church sounds like a rather good thing, like a good phrase. I'm reminded of, was it Mahatma Gandhi's, said, um, Democracy sounds like a great thing. Somebody should try it sometime. <laughs> and uh, you know, Irish Catholicism sounds like a good idea. Maybe somebody should try it sometime. Uh, we didn't really have, you know, our country is very rooted in paganism as well. And our, the Irish Catholic, our, our Irish Catholicism tried to incorporate pagan beliefs, a bit like Roman religion. You know, so it's very complicated. But it, the, the freedom given to the church after independence to guide the sexuality of the Irish people, to guide the children, to teach the children. I mean, it it, it just was going to, maybe it was obvious, maybe it was going to lead to disaster, which is what it's been. And there have been generations uh, ruined by this. And uh, McQuaid, who was auxiliary bishop of Dublin and was his right-hand man in the 60s, made a decision not to look into the first case of child abuse that they should have made more of and that that was the death knell of the happiness you know of literally thousands of children and this is what john and i are wrestling with in different parts of the island in our different houses being witness to the horrors of that and and people of my age who you know are still find it very difficult to say anything about it uh, and uh, part of this book was an effort to just break a silence in me not just in, in other people, but to say the things that I was told when I was six or seven, never to speak about. And at school, you were to, you know, if there was a, what we could in those days call a dodgy priest, there were all these nice phrases for these things, you know, never speak about it. So it's all these things and and more. And I wish it were otherwise. And I wish these gentlemen had been what they were supposed to be you know, which would be our guide. I mean, in America, you have an amazing tradition of your own personal preachers or whatever, people who you can go to and talk to. I would, the last thing on earth I would ever do now would be go to an Irish Catholic priest to ask them anything. Because apart from anything else, I'd be too terrified to be in their company. And that's how it is. Mm. Just being, you know, just totally honest about that. They scared the living daylight out of us and also ruined the lives of countless people. Oh. And that's what this book is about. God help us all. Let's talk a little bit about writing because I can't follow up what you just said. Yeah. Your novels are lyrical. I'm not the, I'm sure I'm not the first person to note that. But I also note you have written successful plays. And a screenwriter that we talked to on this podcast made a really interesting distinction, which has always stuck in my mind. He said a screenwriter or a playwright concentrates on what a character is saying and doing. And in a novel, you write about what a character is thinking and feeling. And I wondered if that gives you greater latitude in the form of novel 
And is that why you have tended to put playwriting in the rearview mirror and concentrated on novels? Well, I couldn't write a screenplay to save my life. It's actually, in my mind, a very different discipline playwriting. Uh, and again, there's more dialogue in my novels than there would be in my wretched plays, which are usually long, long speeches, uh, composers, long speeches. I, why, I don't know. I mean, if I had any sense, I wouldn't write them like that, but that's how they come out. I never quite felt I belonged in the theater. I was always expecting to be shown the door, you know, that moment where the doorman actually shows you the door that he's in charge of. You know, I was less likely to be shown the door for the novel. The theater, as you know, you have your, you know, your enormous career, but it is very challenging, isn't it, being on stage and being in the public eye and, and just, you know, as Woody Allen said, there aren't many professions where you're setting yourself up for a possible public humiliation the next day in all the newspapers. And that's the theater for me. I note also you've written poetry. As I say, I find your prose to be at times poetic. It is wonderfully lyrical prose. Do you read your prose out loud as you write? And are you looking for meter and flow? No, never. And I no, I write in total silence. I do love to read from books when in event at events i will confess to that because it's the first time well i might be a bit frightened the first time but i when i hear the character alive in myself and in my mouth i'm so relieved you know i feel quite joyous about that and i and, and, and i love to do that but i learned to write prose you know you, it's a brilliant observation charlie because i learned to read literally from writing poetry you know that's how i really learned how to write prose if i was a proper teacher that that's how I would try to teach prose by getting my students to try and understand what is at stake in a poem, which is, you know, it's the life and death branch of, of writing. What, why do you mean by that, hmm. the life and death branch? Well, you, because, you know, there's a possibility in writing a poem that in 2,000 years, somebody, if you do it correctly, in 2,000 years, somebody could be reading that. In some other society, some other culture, you know, we're still reading to all, all the Latins. You can do that with a poem, you know, it would be such a great achievement. That's what I mean. I mean, the stakes are high. It's so high that even to get it wrong is a sort of glory in itself. I just feel that poetry is the ultimate branch of, of the things we value as human beings when it comes to writing. You've been long listed again for the Booker Prize. Yeah. And I, I used to joke when I was hosting Good Morning America and we would announce the Oscar nominations every year and Best Actress, I would always say that they should have one nomination just reserved for Meryl Streep and then <laughs> the other four, you could, for whatever movie she'd been in that year. And if she wasn't in a movie that year, then we should nominate her anyway, just for being Meryl Streep. You've been nominated now again and again and again. Do you still get a kick out of that? Oh, yeah. I mean, Please call me the Meryl Streep of Irish literature. I'm ready. Uh, I'll even wear the dress, Charlie. No, you know, I was down in our cottage in the west of Ireland, you know, reconnecting with our Irishness, cleaning out the house. One of my children had been in it for three years. It did need a bit of cleaning. But I was on my hands and knees, scrubbing away. And I noticed I'd missed a call on my phone. I put my phone on airplane mode. Why, why did I do that? Anyway... It was from my editor, so I rang him back thinking he might be in trouble or needed me for something, and it was this. You're on the long list. And I know it, it was the fifth time you might think you could get blasé about feeling like that. I, I just, I was already on my hands and knees, so that was the appropriate position to be in. And, and I wept, and I wept. You know, I wept because it's such 
it's like being taken out of your life for a few moments and uh, you know it is literally blissful sebastian barrett thank you ever so much for joining us it's been a pleasure to talk to you yeah it has been thank you both what a privilege thank you thank you thank you when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from? And does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Rapid fire questions for Sebastian Barry. If somebody was reading their first Sebastian Barry book, where would you have them start? I would start with Annie Dunn, which is the quietest book, sold the least copies, but is closest to my heart. And just start with Annie and sit up there on the mountain with her and see what that feels like. And if they like the company of Annie, they might like the company of the other people too. Ah. Great Irish writer that Americans should be reading but aren't. Oh. You see, there's the complication of Irishness. Claire Louise Bennett, who does get reviewed in New Yorker at length and all the rest of it, but I don't know if she sells a lot of books there. And she's born in England, so there's all that. But she lives in Galway, and she is an Irish writer. But Claire Louise Bennett would be somebody I can think should read. I read that you have a very interesting sort of three-year course in which you produce a novel. What is it? Well, I'll read for a year if I have to read. And if I don't have to read, I'll just beyond the niche for a year and then I'll write for a year and then and that could involve a lot of waiting you know the writing period might be three or four months because I'm waiting and you must wait part of writing is waiting for the damn thing to come into your room and not to hurry it and not to bully it and then another year spent making raids on it and you know robbing the bank of it and going back to it and trying to help it and that sort of thing and waiting for publication. So I saw, I noticed when I was years ago that my lovely friend, Seamus Heaney, wrote a book of poetry every three years. And for heaven's sake, 
if you could write a book of poetry, surely I could write an L novel every three years. That was my thought. What do you do during the year when you're waiting? Like, what does waiting look like for you? Are you staring at the wall like a like a crazy person? Like, what what, what do you do during the waiting? I'm definitely staring at the wall as a crazy person, not even like one. Uh, I, every second day, I still try to run up the mountain. I'm looking for the level ground now, Charlie's not, not so much the hills. Uh, I walk the dogs as much as I can. I spend time with Ali and my wife. Um, you know, we like to drink coffee together and talk about nothing, which is, you know, the absolute best part of my life. And I, I go out and do a lot of events. I go to India or I go to America or I go, and then I love to come home. Uh, I basically try to be the least confused that I can be. And that's always, you know, that's always a wonderful challenge, isn't it? Do you ever read your old books? I've never read any of my books. Uh, you know, you're obliged to read your plays in the sense that they're performed in front of you. But I've never read a book of mine. I mean, but I do believe you write a book from a different part of the brain than, than that educated part of the brain. It's very subconscious. Now you're totally poised. You're like a tennis player at Wimbledon. The book is complete. You have complete access to it. But when it's done, there's times when I read a book in proof. And is it is it disreputable to say that actually I don't remember large sections of it because it's not written from that part of the brain that's reading, not written with the eyes as such. When you do that, though, when you get to those points, do you go, damn, I'm good? Or do you go... God, why do people pay me for this? <laughs> I go, I go, how much psychiatric systems do I really need? <laughs> and sometimes I look at myself on television. Who is that twitching madman <laughs> that is gesticulating with his hands and just looking very, very much in need of at least medication, urgent. So, you know, I, we, whatever we seem to ourselves, we're obviously not that to other people. It's not a bad thing. Just a thing. If God forbid you couldn't write anymore, are you at this point, after writing for so many years, satisfied with your body of work already written, or do you feel that you have more to say? I'm very proud that over a relatively stormy sea of a life, that I was able to make each stepping stone across that storm and make those books and those plays. I'm very proud of that. I don't know what quality they are ultimately, but I am proud of that. If I couldn't do it anymore, what would I do? I, I literally don't know because I, I think it's the only thing. The only thing I could do as a child was sing. The only time people paid you know, any heat to me whatsoever. And it's what I do. You know, I just try and keep singing. Maybe if the voice was fractured or I couldn't remember the words, it would be the equivalent of not writing anymore. Still, you know, there's always, there's always the bow. You can keep that water coming into it. Well, we're so fortunate that you can do it and that you have done it. Mm. It, is a, it is a gift to all of us who, who read your books. Thank you. Thank you ever so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Our conversation with Sebastian Barry, I could tape somebody in Ireland reading me stereo instructions and I could listen to it over and over and over again. There's something about the lilt that I find very relaxing. And frankly, until I was like 10, I thought we were Irish. My father, <laughs> his thesis was about Irish history. When he was four, he made me watch The Quiet Man with John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara, which certified to me that John Wayne is 
not Irish. <laughs> and Victor McLaughlin and Ward Bond and Barry Fitzgerald, who is so wonderful in that movie, and Mildred Natwick. And I'll give you more of the cast if you want, but you don't. Well, no, and, I, and I, I watched that movie and I remember mom going, I hate that movie because at one point John Wayne's just dragging Maureen O'Hara across the field. Oh, it is so sexist. And, it is and so a sexist. And a villager is saying, would you like a stick to beat the, to beat the young woman with? I, it, so, yes, it has issues. It has big issues. But that being said, it presents a beautiful <laughs> Ireland. The scenery is beautiful, John Wayne comes back to Ireland, he's an American, and he comes back to Ireland to buy his cottage in a little town called Innisfree. And the scenery is beautiful. The cottage itself, it's so evocative of Ireland. The Quiet Man speaks to how much we as a family had a love affair with Ireland. It's something that I grew up with. And, you know, when my father read Niall Williams, I got a package from Amazon the next day. When he fell in love with Sebastian Barry's work, I got a call the next day. Ireland, while not being in our DNA, is somehow in the Gibson blood. Yeah. And I love talking to Sebastian Barry for that reason. Yeah. So. so anyway, we want to remind you of all the people who make this podcast possible. And then we'll have a little coda from Sebastian Barry. And Kate, I would end by saying, may the good Lord take a liking to you, but not too soon. <laughs> <laughs> the Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our supervising producer, and Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster, and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America, and Josh Cohan, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian at ABC Audio. There's a little song. Patrick Kavanagh wrote great poet, Patrick Kavanagh. This is the first verse and the only one that I will torture you with. If ever you go to Dublin town in a hundred years or so, look for me in Bagot Street and what I was like at home. For he was a queer one, fall down the night on. He was a queer one, I'll tell you. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from? And does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.